You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. And there's so much more we can say. There's so much more that we can do and emphasize in these brief verses. But this is, I think, enough. And then Easter will pick it back up with the work of Christ. But we've been in verse 14 of chapter 1. And, and I've been setting the truth of what this verse has been proclaiming to us. These words have stirred our hearts and our souls. And today we are finalizing this section on these few words. I want to repeat them to you as, as it says here in verse 14. And the word became flesh. There was a cause and there was a purpose and there was a primary reason for this. There is a necessity in the God of all creation and the God of all the universe to condescend, to come down for a person like you. I always want to make sure that you have that central understanding that you're in the crosshairs, not of an enemy. You're in the crosshairs of a God that loves you and loves you so that he condescended for you. He humiliated himself for you. And we've understood that whole concept when he takes on humanity. He leaves a, the, the, the position of supremacy at the right hand of the Father. And he does it with the intention of getting you back on track. A life that was messed up. A life that has been tainted by sin. A life that has no clear direction without Christ. He comes in and he saves you. And he redirects your purpose and he points you back to the cross because it is at the cross where he fulfills his greatest purpose for you. Now, we always try to avoid narcissism in church. We always try to avoid this ego centrality in church by, by making things about us. But in a sense, when John the Baptist, as we're further going to read in chapter 1 later on, John the Baptist points to the Messiah walking down the riverbanks, and he points to him and he says, there he is. There is the one who came to wipe away the sins of the world. And your name is in there. And you're one of those people. And you're one of those central figures in Christ condes uh, condescending himself to save you. So these words are more than words on a paper. This truth and doctrine is more than a Christological affirmation of who Christ is and what he has done. This has provided you an alternative to a life of sin and death. We always have to remember that our trajectory in our life was shaped by death. Our trajectory was hell. Our, 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 our goal in life even though we didn't plan it that way, it was in the wrong direction. It was on that famous song's highway to hell. That's just where we were going. It wasn't up until God became man that he made a way, a separate way, a different way. And he gave us another option. And that option we find in his work and we're going to finalize these four main reasons. There's a lot more that we can discuss, but we've been discussing four main reasons to answering this question on why did this have to happen? 
Why did this have to come to be? Why did God become a man? Our first reason was this very clear understanding of him restoring our image, our original image and purpose of having dominion and authority with Christ here on earth. You can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to remind yourself of what that looks like. And Psalm chapter 8. And our second point and our second answer, I'm going to go through these very quickly because we spent so much time on them already. Our second reason was this understanding of bringing sons and daughters back to glory, saving us, bringing salvation to us, giving us this option in this other way. And now, these final three points, and you'll have it in your little service order sheet, uh, we put it towards the top. The final two reasons and answers for, for, for Christ or for God becoming a man was to defeat death and the devil. And the final one is to be our prime example of what it is to live in a human life. So let's dissect the first reason. And what the way we've been doing so is in the book of Hebrews. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews. You should be very familiar with the passage that we've been studying lately in the book of Hebrews. And we've been focusing on chapter 2. And I'm going to read from verse 5 and on so that you can kind of remember everything that we've talked about. And we'll finally settle on, on, on the later verses. Chapter 2, verses 5 and on. For it was not the angels that God subjected to the world to come, of which we are speaking. It, was, it has been testified somewhere, referring to Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and, the deliver, and deliver all those who through fear, fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that helps us, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's an amazing word of God, the way we can experience that temptation and yet understand that Jesus himself in our flesh did the exact same thing and still maintained himself perfect. 
One of the main reasons that we see in, in, in this final chapter, and, and we're going to be building up towards that. After Christmas, we're going to be building up, and we're going to see how the book of John itself builds up towards this concept of the celebration aspect of the death of Christ. Although it is a somber feeling to realize that Christ suffered and that Christ died and that Christ had to be crucified, the story does not end there. We read in Matthew chapter 27 that, that the guards and Pilate was worried about Jesus coming back because Jesus, hear, hear what, this, what, what, the, what the soldiers and what Pilate was listening to. They said, this crazy person has spoken things before and he has told his disciples that on the third day he will rise again. And so in so doing... They were fairly afraid that because of what this man has been doing in his life, it is quite possible that that can be a reality. Now, they were kind of iffy about it, and that's why they sent guards to, to protect the tomb and put a big stone in front of it. And so, therefore, there could be no misunderstanding and in so doing, the guards and Pilate were kind of fulfilling that spot in their life where they were listening to the words of Jesus and possibly considering them as truth. The words of Christ hold meaning. They hold life. They give power. And we know that that big rock in front of the tomb just could not hold Jesus back. He resurrected the story doesn't end on his deathbed. The story isn't a sad story and a good story to say, look at this wonderful man. He suffered. He gave to the poor. He gave to the needy. He was with the disenfranchised. He was so social, socially involved. And, and then they crucified him and they killed him. What an example. What a sad story. That doesn't go that way in Scripture. And there's people, like I've mentioned before, when Christmas comes around and then when Easter comes around, there's going to be magazines out that will try to negate this miraculous aspect of the resurrection of Christ. They affirm that Christ lived and that Jesus lived, but they're, they're kind of like, you know, this miraculous thing about Jesus, that, that's just not the case. He was a good man and he did live in our history, yet he did not raise from the dead. But if he didn't raise, if there is no resurrection, if there is no death of Christ, there is no defeat of death. If there is no death of Christ, there is no defeat of the enemy. And to say it the way the book of Hebrews says it, of the devil. The devil is real. You know, you may be here and be like, really, you, you guys really believe that there's like this guy with horns that lives under this this weird layer down beneath the earth, and I don't know how he looks, and I don't, you know, to, to be frank, I don't, I don't really care, and I don't want to know how he looks, but I do know this, that the Bible says he is real, and that one day, even in the book of Revelations, the last book of the Bible, in chapter 19 and in chapter 21, the, the, the Bible describes that his final death will be lived out in the lake of fire where there will be torment for eternity. He will be there. He will be finally de defeated for all of eternity. But this devil is real. And if Christ didn't die, 
then this devil still has authority. Authority over who? Authority over us. And so that's why this point is, is, is so, we need to really understand this because it does become beneficial for our understanding in our faith. But it also brings and highlights this truth reality that death no longer has to enslave us. That death no longer has to preoccupy our minds and, and worry us. And that sin no longer has a firm grasp on us. Through the death of Christ, it has been defeated. That's why in this incarnational link between Christ and his body and his, and his, and his people, he is fulfilling what, what he understood to be a divine promise. He became like us. To free us. He became like us to suffer for us. To take our sins on him and to release us from the bondage of death. There is a need for Christ to die in order for death to be released from us. That's why if you go back to verse 14 in chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Through his death he will destroy the one who has the power of death. He partakes and he shares in our, in, in, in our bodies and in our, in our humanity in order to release us. And that is why this concept of the angels and Moses that we spoke about last week is so important because Jesus didn't come down like them. Jesus didn't, or the, the Son of God didn't come down as an angel. The Son of God didn't come down as another fallible leader like Moses. The Son of Man came down in our human body but lived out a life of perfection. That is what's at stake here. And, and when we finalize today in verses 17 and 18, we'll understand this concept of high priest, of priestly work. But he first must die. He first must be crucified. And if it's going to fulfill what Isaiah chapter 53 says, this has to happen. And not only that, it has to satisfy God. Now this is of much debate. In our current culture, there is this sense of, of what I've mentioned before here, uh, when, when people consider God crushing his son, they, they consider it as cosmic child abuse. They, they have in their mind this idea of a fatherly figure purposely hurting his son, like that just doesn't go well. What father would do such a thing to their son? And so because that is just so alien to us and because that just doesn't make sense to us, what our modern culture has, has brought in this understanding and has said that atonement aspect of, of, or that propitiation aspect of the cross and Jesus Christ, that's nonsense. What Jesus does on the cross is only an example of suffering. And it talks about and they try to focus Christ's suffering only on his physical pain and physical attributes in order for us to just focus on that and say, oh, that's so bad. That, that's not right. That's so sad. And they try to get away from this divine aspect of, of true God crushing his son because there is a purpose. 
and that purpose of being crushed isn't because God delights in crushing his children. It isn't because God delighted in crushing Jesus Christ, his one perfect son, his only begotten son. It isn't because God loves and, and feels good when that happens. It is because the necessity of our dead lives we were ruled and governed by sin, and in order for that sin to be destroyed and, de and deleted and depleted from our lives, God had to crush his son by taking all of our sins on him. That is what the beginning of expiation and the atonement and all these big theological terms come to, to a big understanding that if God doesn't do that, if Jesus Christ doesn't do that, then again, my friends, who's going to pay for your sin? But what the world will tell you, and what, what I mean by the world is not just this, this weird entity out there somewhere, but what I'm talking about is even the, uh, the people that, that, that fill your brains with information, not necessarily the newsroom or, the, or CNN or all these other uh, uh, kind of news media out there. I'm talking about people in general will begin to fill your mind and they will talk to you in such a way where, where, where you'll begin to realize, I'm really not that bad. You know, I, I'm going to this church that I'm right here on 18th and 54th and they keep telling me I'm a sinner. But, but in reality, you know, I'm not that bad of a person. I mean, I love my wife. I love my kids. I go to work. I, I don't cheat that much on my taxes. I mean, it's, I'm not that bad. And that lie begins to fill your brain and sooner or later begins to fill your heart where you'll realize, you know, there's no need for, for this religion. There's no need for this Christ in a sense because I'm really not that bad of a person. I deserve heaven. If there is a heaven, I deserve to be there. I'm not like him. I'm not like her. And so we've compared ourselves to external people that are equally as fallible as ourselves rather than comparing ourselves and imitating Christ. So what the issue here then is, if that's the case, then of course, you're free to go. You're free to spend your Sunday morning and enjoy your Sunday morning. You're free to invest your time in something else because then there's no real need for you to come down and humble yourself before a great God. But this great God understands our need. It isn't more money like we've mentioned. It isn't a better career. It is forgiveness of sins. Friend, who is going to forgive your sins? I'd rather be right at the end of my life and face God in judgment but facing him as my mediator than to face God and be wrong my whole life and realize that, dang, I missed my opportunity and now I'm being separated from God my entire life. You have to be very careful on this. And this is why Christ comes down to defeat death so that that death mentality is no longer part of who you are. You don't need to live thinking that you are a good person. You have to think that you are a person living under grace. You do not deserve it. You don't deserve mercy. But for some reason, God has loved you. It's like that question that comes, comes time, you, you may ask yourself, like, why does my wife love me, man? Like I'm, a, like, I'm a brute. Like, how is it my wife can love me this much? Or how is it my husband can love me this much? It, it, we don't understand it sometimes. 
Sometimes the people that are around you don't understand how much your wife loves you. It's like, man, girl, you, I don't know what you see in that guy. It's weird. It's, a, it's, a, it's an eerie feeling. Yet God does it. God loves you, man. It's, in, it's insane, if there's, for lack of a better term. But we don't reason with God. We don't have to realize why. We don't have to have the right answers. Why? The only thing that we could to enjoy is say, thanks for this grace. This grace that I myself could not do because I couldn't defeat death. I can't defeat death. But Christ on the cross defeats death in order for us to live. There is a death of death in the death of Christ. I know that sounds a little bit a tongue twister, but that's the reality. Christ destroys death by dying so that you and I won't have to die. And I'll get to what that means in a little bit more. But we have to understand this. Once again, I'm reminding you of an important aspect here. In, in verses 14 through 16, there is a slave master that is in control. The slave master we've known as Satan or the devil. And in order for death to be defeated, Christ has to be, defeat the slave master, the one that rules in the empire of death. How do we know this? Turn with me very quickly to 2 Corinthians. I'm going to make you read your Bible a lot today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It said, Paul says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is this person blinding? The people, the unbelievers? The God of this world. And if you know in your Bible, it's a small g. It's not capital G, it's not the main theos, it's a God of this world. In this case, Satan. Go with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Who was our governor? Who was our prince? What does it say there? The spirit and the prince of this world that considered us sons of disobedience. One more, Colossians. Just to let you know that this is a real deal, friends. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, sorry, I read the, the wrong one. It's back to verse 13. He has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There was a domain, and when we live in a domain, we are governed by its ruler. But what does Christ do? Delivers us from that domain and transfers us over into another domain, into another kingdom, into a kingdom of light, into a kingdom that is governed by Jesus Christ. There is a real sense that there is a slave master in control of those whom he works on that are called the sons of disobedience. And if you're like me, and if you're honest with yourselves, you can trace back a bit of your trajectory in your previous life and understand that that was deeply at work within you. You were an enemy of God. You were in, in, in filled with, in, in dwelt with your sin, and you loved it. It wasn't up until you realized who God was. One day you were invited to church, and something happened. You don't know what it was. I love doing membership interviews because when I get to do a membership interview, I ask a lot of people, how did you come to Christ? And sometimes, in many cases, they say, I don't even know how it happened. I'm just here. Some people like, that are really good with dates are like, yeah, December 22nd at 8.33 p.m., you know, something happened. I'm like, wow. But in most cases, people are like, you know, just one day, I just, I stopped. I remember this, this one guy, I, I always share his testimony because it was always so impactful for me. He, he, we used to have our church on Austin and 13th. I don't know if you've passed by there recently, but there's an old uh, church building there on Austin and 13th. And we were there for the first, I think, 12, 13 years of our, of our church life after we came from Chicago. And in that building, he said that he'd always take the blue line. So he'd always walk to the blue line to go to work in downtown. And every Sunday morning, he'd pass by our church walking, and, and he would see a bunch of people. And a bunch of loud, he, he said, a bunch of loud, happy people. Every Sunday morning, he's like, what's going on in there? I, I don't know why these people are so scandalous. Because we would, we would, like, literally flood the Austin Boulevard and everyone would be out there and children would be running around. I'm, I'm surprised none of, none of the kids got run over. But, but it, was, it was just crazy. It was just a loud, I mean, Latino people, loud. On Sunday morning at 8.30, everyone was, like, having a blast party on, on the street. And so this guy would always consistently walk through Austin every Sunday morning to get to work until one day... He's like, you know what, I'm going to just not go to work, and I'm going to go in there with those people. And, and, and so I told him, like, wait, you really did that? He's like, yeah, so check this out. One day, I was going to work, but I was telling myself, next week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go today to work. I'm going to tell him that next week I'm not going to come in, and then I'm going to go to, go, to, go to church. And he's like, I'm telling my wife that. I told my wife that it was the next week. And so I'm on my way to, to work, walking down, and he said that he purposely walked on the side of, uh, of the church instead of on, on the opposite side of the church. So as he walked on the side of the church, he says that he was walking through there, and all the people are loud, and hey, hermanos y hermanas, y como están, y blah, blah, blah. Everyone's clapping and enjoying themselves on a Sunday morning, and, and that he just got like caught up in the wave and somehow ended up in our church service, not going to work. 
So you, I could just, like, imagine, like, he got caught up in the crowd and he got, like, rushed into. And someone, like, I don't know, picked him up or I don't know. Uh, but he got in there and he said, after that day, my whole life changed. And I was like, what, what, what happened? He's like, I don't even know. He's like, but I felt this need to go back home and break all my alcohol. And I was like, who told you to do that? He's like, no one. He's like, I just, I just felt the need to do it. And he was into a big, he was a big salsa lover, lover, lover not, not salsa the food, but like uh, salsa the music, salsa. <laughs> I, don't know, I, don't think you, I don't think it translates to English. Uh, so he's a big salsa lover of music, salsa music. And, uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of songs that he used to like, and they were kind of perverted, and, and he would always tell me, he's like, some salsa songs are, are not traditional, and they're very perverted. He's like, and I just felt this need to, to, to break those things. And I'm like, who told you to do that? He's like, nobody. I'm like, who told you to stop drinking? He's like, I was getting drunk every, every other day, and I just felt that inside of me something happened that I had to stop. I'm like, after that one day? And he's like, yeah. And then he was coming to church consistently for like, Six, seven years. It was, it was impressive to see that testimony. And we don't realize where we were until God literally transfers us over from a domain of darkness, something that I couldn't have done. If I would have seen that guy, I would have probably scared him away. I would have been like, hey, hermano, venga la iglesia. And he would have probably been like, hey, dude, get away from me. Let me keep going away. I got to go to work. No one could have done that for him. It was God. He ended up in the service, and, and he, he committed himself to Christ. And that's, that, that's God. That's the realization of the depravity nature that we were once in, in the field, that, in the realm that we were once in as enemies of God. Now we're transferred over, and we live in a new domain. And that's by God's work. Bro, I don't know how you came to Christ, but you know your past. And that past isn't at many times good. And sometimes the enemy, all he wants to do is remind you of how bad you were so that you can feel guilty of yourself and then just kind of say, you know what, I shouldn't come back to church. It's just, uh, this isn't for me. I'm too much of a bad person. No, no. What God does is defeats death. He transfers you over so that in this death camp that you were, consistently being fed lies, over here, Paul says in, in Romans 5, we are delivered and we are free from condemnation. There is no more condemnation for children of Christ. You don't have to worry about your past anymore. You don't have to worry about what's weighing you down from your past. That doesn't exist in a sense anymore because you're free. Christ has defeated death for you when you could never do it yourself. And you're living in a new transferred environment. You are now in a new spiritual state. You are now facing God and you are facing death with God on your side. It's, we don't have to fear death anymore. Many of us do fear death or many people on the outside world do fear death. That's why sometimes when you go to a Christian funeral, and I've had to do several of these already. When you go to a Christian funeral, when you go to a non-Christian funeral, you can sense the difference. There is more of a celebration aspect in a Christian funeral because we don't face death like the world. We know that that person who died in Christ has graduated into a better 
life. There's cause for celebration. There's a cry, there's a, there's, there is cries and there, there, there's tears and there's, there's, there's screaming sometimes, but, but we all at the end know that, that we're going to a better place, that we're going to live with God. So death no longer has a hold on us. We don't have to be afraid of dying. I don't, I don't want to bring a, a dark tone to the service here. Like, oh my God. No, it, it's not that. But hey, if you die in Christ, you're going to resurrect with Christ. You're going to live with Christ. And God's going to take care of your people. God's going to take care of your families. You don't have to worry about that. That's what God is doing in Christ Jesus by separating us from death. By separating us from the death master, from our slave master, and transferring us into a separate realm. He becomes our deliverer. He becomes our savior. And he's the one that is our victor on the cross. When he dies, he is victorious. He is not defeated. He is victorious when he dies. Because at that bloodshed, at that moment, all sin and the life of his children has been broken. We aren't under the bondage of sin anymore. So that's a victory, my friends. That's victory right there on the cross. Even though cross hung on the cross, even though Christ was there hanging on the cross, that's a victory for us. And then the victory gets better because when he gets buried, he also resurrects. And we're going to talk about that right now what that resurrection means for us. But I want to focus in on this, on the third aspect. I can't get too crazy into the death of death because we're going to talk about it in Easter. But the fourth point, the fourth answer to why the God-man, to why God had to become man, we find it in this wonderful example of Jesus Christ living the way we should have lived living the way we should live, and we can see him now in his work accomplishing our work for us. He becomes our great example. If you look at verse 17 and 18 back in, in Hebrews, go with me back to Hebrews. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. You see that? You see what that says? He is functioning as a mediator. He is functioning as our priest in God's service for us. This death aspect, this death that he carries, it is a priestly work. It could only be done by a clean priest. It could only be done by a perfect sacrifice. And friends, I'm not going to get tired of telling you this, but this is what happens when Christ takes on his priestly role. He fulfills what the Old Testament had set up. They set up a Levitical system with a high priest and a sacrifice. And that needed to be fulfilled with the cleansing of a high priest and the cleansing of a perfect, without blemish lamb. And so what does Christ do? He fulfills both aspects. He fulfills that the one who, who sacrifices and he fulfills the role of the one being sacrificed. He provides himself as service to God this wonderful role 
of sacrifice. He becomes our high priest. And as high priest, he intercedes for us daily. Hebrews chapter 7. He is our intercessor. He is functioning as a priest. I know you can look at some of us as pastors here in the church. But Christ is your great high priest. Christ is the one who has defeated death for you. And Christ is the one who, has, who is continuously praying and interceding for you. Even when you can't. This is his role. This is his function. He takes us on and he calls us brothers. He calls us brothers and sisters. This is his official work so that we can follow his example. As priests, he is our example because now we know how to live in service to God. What's the greatest thing we learn from Jesus Christ as priests? That he was obedient. Humbly in service to God, he obeyed being crushed on the cross for the suffering of our sins. He takes it upon himself. In so doing, he gives us an example, not on how to die. He gives us an example on how to live. Humbly, in service to God, completely obedient to him. You, you're a soldier in the army of Christ, and you, I don't know what hand they use or which one it is, but you subject yourself to your general. He is your high priest, and he gives us the way on how to live. This is the wonderful aspect of Christ is that when he saves us, he shows us how to live and how to please God. And the primary way we do it is in obedience because Christ was obedient. Now I want to just finish up with several verses here. I told you I'm going to make you read your Bible today. I want, to, I want you to see what, what he fulfills. Go with me to Romans. I'm going to try to get through these passages fairly quickly. Romans chapter 3. Look what the Father does. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God put forward... As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So Christ is our propitiation. He satisfies God's wrath over us. Keep going. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You guys see the common word in these two verses? Righteousness. Righteousness that you and I could never achieve and could never have. And who is doing the dirty work? Christ. What does it say again? This, is, this, this hurts my brain to think about this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Christ, living a perfect, 
humble, obedient life. Think about this. Just pause for a second. At the cross, on his way to the cross, prior to hanging on the cross, Christ is walking as a perfect man. No sin. No shame. There is nothing that you can say about Christ to make him look bad. Nothing. On the way to the cross. So much so that Joseph had to come in and help him carry the cross because physically he couldn't do it anymore. But there's nothing that you can say to Christ about him or about his character or about his integrity. Everything was perfect. Yet, in his humble obedience to God, he says, I will take on all of these disobedient actions from your children and I'll take it upon myself. I never knew sin. Christ never knew sin until your sin was introduced to his life. And then he takes it away from you. That's, that's grace, man. That's, that's love. That, that, those are things that we can't even put in words. Love, grace, mercy. I don't know what, what, how else to describe that. But the man that was perfect, I stained. I stained the perfect man. Living in humble obedience to God. Go all the way to 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's God again, giving us his righteousness by taking our sin. Now, is this something that the New Testament writers came up with on their own? No. Go all the way back to Genesis. Put that Bible to work. I hope it gets put to work at home. Genesis chapter 3. We'll start off on verse 14. This is God talking to the fallen man and woman. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. From the, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Hebrew here is crush your head. What, this is the proto-evangelion. This is the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3. That the offspring of the woman in the singular here, Hebrew, singular, offspring, your one seed will come. And he is speaking to the serpent and crush your head. Who is this one that crushes the serpent's head? Christ. It's been set up from the beginning of time. Don't believe me? Go to Genesis chapter 12. 
through this seed, looking in chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That seed that Abraham will carry is in the singular, and that's going to be the blessing of the nations, the one who bears the sin of all. One more in Genesis 22. Verse 17, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the, on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. You hear the singular right there again? And in your offspring, singular, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In Christ, everyone becomes blessed because it has been prophesied since the beginning of time. When Christ comes in, in, in the human flesh, he comes to destroy the devil. He comes to crush his head because Lord knows you and I could never do it. He came to defeat death because you and I were afraid of death because it wasn't part of our original design and now we can live in freedom because in Christ we are no longer slaves to our slave master the devil now we are heirs and sons and daughters of the most high who have an inheritance to gain when death comes or Christ comes before so friends why did God become a man? Well, you have four answers there to talk to your family about for the next 20 weeks possibly. But you know that he did it for you. Let's stand up. Bow your heads with me as we pray this morning. What a wonderful cross. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful God. Father, there isn't words that many of us could reiterate or express. All we know is that we are your children that have been saved by grace. Children that deserved wrath. That wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ because of us. Children that lived in disobedience as sons of disobedience. You destroyed that realm of darkness so that we could live as obedient children the way Christ lived humbly and submissively to you. Father, you promised to walk beside us because there's no way... We can live our lives being bombarded by the enemy because he is still very real and still very much alive until that final victory will come. And we are still being tempted day in and day out. And some of us, Father, still fall into temptation. But remind us, Lord, that there is no condemnation in your son. But there is victory. Because we don't have to be slaves to that sin.
We can walk victoriously. We can walk defeating sin consistently, Father. Because you, your Son, and the Holy Spirit abide within us. And we can live a victorious life in Christ Jesus. And for all of this, Father, thank you for these wonderful opportunities that you give us to come to worship. Because you deserve it. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, everyone says amen. Hope to chat with you in the back, guys.